Midway through the morning, he decided he wanted to eat something. He was still too weak to drive, so I drove him to a cafe in a shopping mall. It was closed, but the owner was used to jobs knocking on the door at off hours, and he happily let us in. He's taken on a mission to try to fatten me up, Jobs joked. His doctors had pushed him to eat eggs as a source of high-quality protein, and he ordered an omelet. Living with a disease like this, and all the pain, constantly reminds you of your own mortality, and that can do strange things to your brain if you're not careful, he said. You don't make plans more than a year out, and that's bad. You need to force yourself to plan as if you will live for many years. An example of this magical thinking was his plan to build a luxurious yacht. Before his liver transplant, he and his family used to rent a boat for vacations, traveling to Mexico, the South Pacific, or the Mediterranean. On many of these cruises, Jobs got bored or began to hate the design of the boat, so they would cut the trip short and fly to Kona Village. But sometimes the cruise worked well. The best vacation I've ever been on was when we went down the coast of Italy, then to Athens, which is a pit, but the Parthenon is mind-blowing, and then to Ephesus in Turkey, where they have these ancient public lavatories in marble with a place in the middle for musicians to serenade. When they got to Istanbul, he hired a history professor to give his family a tour. At the end, they went to a Turkish bath, where the professor's lecture gave Jobs an insight about the globalization of youth. I had a real revelation. We were all in robes, and they made some Turkish coffee for us. The professor explained how the coffee was made very different from anywhere else, and I realized, so fucking what? Which kids, even in Turkey, give a shit about Turkish coffee? All day I had looked at young people in Istanbul. They were all drinking what every other kid in the world drinks, and they were wearing clothes that looked like they were bought at the Gap, and they are all using cell phones. They were like kids everywhere else. It hit me that for young people, this whole world is the same now. When we're making products, there is no such thing as a Turkish phone or a music player that young people in Turkey would want that's different from one young people elsewhere would want. We're just one world now. After the joy of that cruise, Jobs had amused himself by beginning to design and then repeatedly redesigning a boat he said he wanted to build someday. When he got sick again in 2009, he almost canceled the project. I didn't think I would be alive when it got done, he recalled. But that made me so sad, and I decided that working on the design was fun to do, and maybe I have a shot at being alive when it's done. If I stop work on the boat, and then I make it alive for another two years, I would be really pissed. So I've kept going. After our omelets at the cafe, we went back to his house and he showed me all of the models and architectural drawings. As expected, the planned yacht was sleek and minimalist. The teak decks were perfectly flat and unblemished by any accoutrements. As at an Apple store, the cabin windows were large panes, almost floor to ceiling, 
and the main living area was designed to have walls of glass that were forty feet long and ten feet high. He had gotten the chief engineer of the Apple stores to design a special glass that would be able to provide structural support. By then, the boat was under construction by the Dutch custom yacht builder's fade ship, but Jobs was still fiddling with the design. I know that it's possible I will die and leave Loreen with a half-built boat, he said, but I have to keep going on it. If I don't, it's an admission that I'm about to die. He and Powell would be celebrating their twentieth wedding anniversary a few days later, and he admitted that at times he had not been as appreciative of her as she deserved. I'm very lucky, because you just don't know what you're getting into when you get married, he said. You have an intuitive feeling about things. I couldn't have done better, because not only is Laureen smart and beautiful, she's turned out to be a really good person. For a moment he teared up. He talked about his other girlfriends, particularly Tina Redsey, but said he ended up in the right place. He also reflected on how selfish and demanding he could be. Laureen had to deal with that, and also with me being sick, he said. I know that living with me is not a bowl of cherries. Among his selfish traits was that he tended not to remember anniversaries or birthdays. But in this case, he decided to plan a surprise. They had gotten married at the Awani Hotel in Yosemite, and he decided to take Powell back there on their anniversary. But when Jobs called, the place was fully booked. So he had the hotel approach the people who had reserved the suite where he and Powell had stayed and ask if they would relinquish it. I offered to pay for another weekend, Jobs recalled, and the man was very nice and said, Twenty years, please take it, it's yours. He found the photographs of the wedding taken by a friend and had large prints made on thick paper boards and placed in an elegant box. Scrolling through his iPhone, he found the note that he had composed to be included in the box and read it aloud. We didn't know much about each other twenty years ago. We were guided by our intuition. You swept me off my feet. It was snowing when we got married at the Awani. Years passed, kids came, good times, hard times, but never bad times. Our love and respect has endured and grown. We've been through so much together, and here we are right back where we started twenty years ago, older, wiser, with wrinkles on our faces and hearts. We now know many of life's joys, sufferings, secrets, and wonders, and we're still here together. My feet have never returned to the ground. By the end of the recitation, he was crying uncontrollably. When he composed himself, he noted that he had also made a set of the pictures for each of his kids. I thought they might like to see that I was young once. iCloud In 2001, Jobs had a vision. Your personal computer would serve as a digital hub for a variety of lifestyle devices, such as music players, video recorders, phones, and tablets. 
This played to Apple's strength of creating end-to-end products that were simple to use. The company was thus transformed from a high-end niche computer company to the most valuable technology company in the world. By 2008, Jobs had developed a vision for the next wave of the digital era. In the future, he believed, your desktop computer would no longer serve as the hub for your content. Instead, the hub would move to the cloud. In other words, your content would be stored on remote servers managed by a company you trusted, and it would be available for you to use on any device, anywhere. It would take him three years to get it right. He began with a false step. In the summer of 2008, he launched a product called Mobile Me, an expensive $99 per year subscription service that allowed you to store your address book, documents, pictures, videos, email, and calendar remotely in the cloud and to sync them with any device. In theory, you could go to your iPhone or any computer and access all aspects of your digital life. There was, however, a big problem. The service, to use Jobs' terminology, sucked. It was complex, devices didn't sync well, and email and other data got lost randomly in the ether. Apple's mobile me is far too flawed to be reliable, was the headline on Walt Mossberg's review in the Wall Street Journal. Jobs was furious. He gathered the mobile me team in the auditorium on the Apple campus, stood on stage and asked, can anyone tell me what mobile me is supposed to do? After the team members offered their answers, Jobs shot back, so why the fuck doesn't it do that? Over the next half hour, he continued to berate them. You've tarnished Apple's reputation, he said. You should hate each other for having let each other down. Mossberg, our friend, is no longer writing good things about us. In front of the whole audience, he got rid of the leader of the Mobile Me team and replaced him with Eddie Q, who oversaw all Internet content at Apple. As Fortune's Adam Lashinsky reported in a dissection of the Apple corporate culture, accountability is strictly enforced. By 2010, it was clear that Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and others were aiming to be the company that could best store all of your content and data in the cloud and sync it on your various devices, so Jobs redoubled his efforts. As he explained it to me that fall, we need to be the company that manages your relationship with the cloud, streams your music and videos from the cloud, stores your pictures and information, and maybe even your medical data. Apple was the first to have the insight about your computer becoming a digital hub. So we wrote all of these apps, iPhoto, iMovie, iTunes, and tied in our devices, like the iPod and iPhone and iPad, and it's worked brilliantly. But over the next few years, the hub is going to move from your computer into the cloud. So it's the same digital hub strategy, but the hub's in a different place. It means you will always have access to your content, and you won't have to sync. It's important that we make this transformation, 
because of what Clayton Christensen calls the innovator's dilemma, where people who invent something are usually the last ones to see past it, and we certainly don't want to be left behind. I'm going to take mobile me and make it free, and we're going to make syncing content simple. We are building a server farm in North Carolina. We can provide all the syncing you need, and that way we can lock in the customer. Jobs discussed this vision at his Monday morning meetings, and gradually it was refined to a new strategy. I sent emails to groups of people at 2 a.m. and batted things around, he recalled. We think about this a lot because it's not a job, it's our life. Although some board members, including Al Gore, questioned the idea of making Mobile Me free, they supported it. It would be their strategy for attracting customers into Apple's orbit for the next decade. The new service was named iCloud, and Jobs unveiled it in his keynote address to Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference in June 2011. He was still on medical leave and for some days in May had been hospitalized with infections and pain. Some close friends urged him not to make the presentation, which would involve lots of preparation and rehearsals. But the prospect of ushering in another tectonic shift in the digital age seemed to energize him. When he came on stage at the San Francisco Convention Center, he was wearing a Von Rosen black cashmere sweater on top of his usual Ise Miyake black turtleneck, and he had thermal underwear beneath his blue jeans. But he looked more gaunt than ever. The crowd gave him a prolonged standing ovation. That always helps, and I appreciate it, he said. But within minutes, Apple's stock dropped more than $4 to $340. He was making a heroic effort, but he looked weak. He handed the stage over to Phil Schiller and Scott Forstall to demo the new operating systems for Macs and mobile devices, then came back on to show off iCloud himself. About ten years ago, we had one of our most important insights, he said. The PC was going to become the hub for your digital life, your videos, your photos, your music. But it has broken down in the last few years. Why? He riffed about how hard it was to get all of your content synced to each of your devices. If you have a song you've downloaded on your iPad, a picture you've taken on your iPhone, and a video you've stored on your computer, you can end up feeling like an old-fashioned switchboard operator as you plug USB cables in and out of things to get the content shared. Keeping these devices in sync is driving us crazy, he said to great laughter. We have a solution. It's our next big insight. We are going to demote the PC and the Mac to be just a device, and we are going to move the digital hub into the cloud. Jobs was well aware that this big insight was in fact not really new. Indeed, he joked about Apple's previous attempt. You may think, why should I believe them? They're the ones who brought me mobile me. The audience laughed nervously. Let me just say it wasn't our finest hour. 
but as he demonstrated iCloud, it was clear that it would be better. Mail, contacts, and calendar entries synced instantly. So did apps, photos, books, and documents. Most impressive, Jobs and Eddie Q had made deals with the music companies, unlike the folks at Google and Amazon. Apple would have 18 million songs on its cloud servers. If you had any of these on any of your devices or computers, whether you had bought it legally or pirated it, Apple would let you access a high-quality version of it on all of your devices without having to go through the time and effort to upload it to the cloud. It all just works, he said. That simple concept, that everything would just work seamlessly, was, as always, Apple's competitive advantage. Microsoft had been advertising cloud power for more than a year, and three years earlier, its chief software architect, the legendary Ray Ozzie, had issued a rallying cry to the company. Our aspiration is that individuals will only need to license their media once and use any of their devices to access and enjoy their media. But Ozzy had quit Microsoft at the end of 2010, and the company's cloud computing push was never manifested in consumer devices. Amazon and Google both offered cloud services in 2011, but neither company had the ability to integrate the hardware and software and content of a variety of devices. Apple controlled every link in the chain and designed them all to work together. The devices, computers, operating systems, and application software, along with the sale and storage of the content. Of course, it worked seamlessly only if you were using an Apple device and stayed within Apple's gated garden. That produced another benefit for Apple, customer stickiness. Once you began using iCloud, it would be difficult to switch to a Kindle or Android device. Your music and other content would not sync to them. In fact, they might not even work. It was the culmination of three decades spent eschewing open systems. We thought about whether we should do a music client for Android, Jobs told me over breakfast the next morning. We put iTunes on Windows in order to sell more iPods, but I don't see an advantage of putting our music app on Android, except to make Android users happy, and I don't want to make Android users happy. A New Campus When Jobs was 13, he had looked up Bill Hewlett in the phone book called him to score a part he needed for a frequency counter he was trying to build, and ended up getting a summer job at the instruments division of Hewlett-Packard. That same year, HP bought some land in Cupertino to expand its calculator division. Wozniak went to work there, and it was on this site that he designed the Apple I and Apple II during his moonlighting hours. When HP decided in 2010 to abandon its Cupertino campus, which was just about a mile east of Apple's One Infinite Loop headquarters, Jobs quietly arranged to buy it and the adjoining property. 
He admired the way that Hewlett and Packard had built a lasting company, and he prided himself on having done the same at Apple. Now he wanted a showcase headquarters, something that no West Coast technology company had. He eventually accumulated 150 acres, much of which had been apricot orchards when he was a boy, and threw himself into what would become a legacy project that combined his passion for design with his passion for creating an enduring company. I want to leave a signature campus that expresses the values of the company for generations, he said. He hired what he considered to be the best architectural firm in the world, that of Sir Norman Foster, which had done smartly engineered buildings, such as the restored Reichstag in Berlin and 30 Simmeriacs in London. Not surprisingly, Jobs got so involved in the planning, both the vision and the details, that it became almost impossible to settle on a final design. This was to be his lasting edifice, and he wanted to get it right. Foster's firm assigned 50 architects to the team, and every three weeks throughout 2010, they showed Jobs revised models and options. Over and over, he would come up with new concepts, sometimes entirely new shapes, and make them restart and provide more alternatives. When he first showed me the models and plans in his living room, the building was shaped like a huge winding racetrack made of three joined semicircles around a large central courtyard. The walls were floor-to-ceiling glass, and the interior had rows of office pods that allowed the sunlight to stream down the aisles. It permits serendipitous and fluid meeting spaces, he said, and everybody gets to participate in the sunlight. The next time he showed me the plans, a month later, we were in Apple's large conference room across from his office, where a model of the proposed building covered the table. He had made a major change. The pods would all be set back from the windows so that long corridors would be bathed in sun. These would also serve as the common spaces. There was a debate with some of the architects who wanted to allow the windows to be opened. Jobs had never liked the idea of people being able to open things. That would just allow people to screw things up, he declared. On that, as on other details, he prevailed. When he got home that evening, Jobs showed off the drawings at dinner, and Reed joked that the aerial view reminded him of male genitalia. His father dismissed the comment as reflecting the mindset of a teenager. But the next day he mentioned the comment to the architects. Unfortunately, once I've told you that, you're never going to be able to erase that image from your mind, he said. By the next time I visited, the shape had been changed to a simple circle. The new design meant there would not be a straight piece of glass in the building. All would be curved and seamlessly joined. Jobs had long been fascinated with glass, and his experience demanding huge custom panes for Apple's retail stores made him confident that it would be possible to make massive curved pieces in quantity. The planned center courtyard was 800 feet across, more than three typical city blocks, or almost the length of three football fields, 
and he showed it to me with overlays indicating how it could surround St. Peter's Square in Rome. One of his lingering memories was of the orchards that had once dominated the area, so he hired a senior arborist from Stanford and decreed that 80% of the property would be landscaped in a natural manner with 6,000 trees. I asked him to make sure to include a new set of apricot orchards, Jobs recalled. You used to see them everywhere, even on the corners, and they're part of the legacy of this valley. By June 2011, the plans for the four-story, three-million-square-foot building, which would hold more than 12,000 employees, were ready to unveil. He decided to do so in a quiet and unpublicized appearance before the Cupertino City Council on the day after he had announced iCloud at the Worldwide Developers Conference. Even though he had little energy, he had a full schedule that day. Ron Johnson, who had developed Apple's stores and run them for more than a decade, had decided to accept an offer to be the CEO of J.C. Penney, and he came by Jobs' house in the morning to discuss his departure. Then Jobs and I went into Palo Alto to a small yogurt and oatmeal cafe called Fresh, where he talked animatedly about possible future Apple products. Later that day, he was driven to Santa Clara for the quarterly meeting that Apple had with top Intel executives, where they discussed the possibility of using Intel chips in future mobile devices. That night, U2 was playing at the Oakland Coliseum, and Jobs had considered going. Instead, he decided to use that evening to show his plans to the Cupertino Council. Arriving without an entourage or any fanfare, and looking relaxed in the same black sweater he had worn for his developer's conference speech, he stood on a podium with clicker in hand and spent twenty minutes showing slides of the design to council members. When a rendering of the sleek, futuristic, perfectly circular building appeared on the screen, he paused and smiled. It's like a spaceship has landed, he said. A few moments later, he added, I think we have a shot at building the best office building in the world. The following Friday, Job sent an email to a colleague from the distant past, Ann Bowers, the widow of Intel's co-founder, Bob Noyce. She had been Apple's human resources director and den mother in the early 1980s, in charge of reprimanding Jobs after his tantrums and tending to the wounds of his co-workers. Jobs asked if she would come see him the next day. Bowers happened to be in New York, but she came by his house that Sunday when she returned. By then he was sick again, in pain and without much energy, but he was eager to show her the renderings of the new headquarters. You should be proud of Apple, he said. You should be proud of what we built. Then he looked at her and asked, intently, a question that almost floored her. Tell me, what was I like when I was young? Bowers tried to give him an honest answer. You were very impetuous and very difficult, she replied, but your vision was compelling. You told us, the journey is the reward. That turned out to be true. Yes, Jobs answered. I did learn some things along the way.
Then a few minutes later, he repeated it, as if to reassure Bowers and himself. I did learn some things. I really did. Chapter 41, Round 3 A Never-Ending Struggle Family Ties Jobs had an aching desire to make it to his son's graduation from high school in June 2010. When I was diagnosed with cancer, I made my deal with God or whatever, which was that I really wanted to see Reed graduate, and that got me through 2009, he said. As a senior, Reed looked eerily like his father at 18, with a knowing and slightly rebellious smile, intense eyes, and a shock of dark hair. But from his mother, he had inherited a sweetness and painfully sensitive empathy that his father lacked. He was demonstrably affectionate and eager to please. Whenever his father was sitting sullenly at the kitchen table and staring at the floor, which happened often when he was ailing, the only thing sure to cause his eyes to brighten was Reed walking in. Reed adored his father. Soon after I started working on this book, he dropped in to where I was staying and, as his father often did, suggested we take a walk. He told me, with an intensely earnest look, that his father was not a cold, profit-seeking businessman but was motivated by a love of what he did and a pride in the products he was making. After Jobs was diagnosed with cancer, Reed began spending his summers working in a Stanford oncology lab doing DNA sequencing to find genetic markers for colon cancer. In one experiment, he traced how mutations go through families. One of the very few silver linings about me getting sick is that Reed's gotten to spend a lot of time studying with some very good doctors, Jobs said. His enthusiasm for it is exactly how I felt about computers when I was his age. I think the biggest innovations of the 21st century will be the intersection of biology and technology. A new era is beginning, just like the digital one was when I was his age. Reed used his cancer study as the basis for the senior report he presented to his class at Crystal Springs Upland School. As he described how he used centrifuges and dyes to sequence the DNA of tumors, his father sat in the audience beaming, along with the rest of his family. I fantasize about Reed getting a house here in Palo Alto with his family and riding his bike to work as a doctor at Stanford. Jobs said afterward. Reed had grown up fast in 2009 when it looked as if his father was going to die. He took care of his younger sisters while his parents were in Memphis, and he developed a protective paternalism. But when his father's health stabilized in the spring of 2010, he regained his playful, teasing personality. One day during dinner, he was discussing with his family where to take his girlfriend for dinner. His father suggested Il Fornaio, an elegant standard in Palo Alto, but Reed said he had been unable to get reservations. Do you want me to try, his father asked. Reed resisted. He wanted to handle it himself. Aaron, the somewhat shy middle child, suggested that she could outfit a teepee in their garden 
and she and Eve, the younger sister, would serve them a romantic meal there. Reed stood up and hugged her. He would take her up on that some other time, he promised. One Saturday, Reed was one of the four contestants on his school's Quiz Kids team, competing on a local TV station. The family, minus Eve, who was in a horse show, came to cheer him on. As the television crew bumbled around getting ready, his father tried to keep his impatience in check and remain inconspicuous among the parents sitting in the rows of folding chairs. But he was clearly recognizable in his trademark jeans and black turtleneck, and one woman pulled up a chair right next to him and started to take his picture. Without looking at her, he stood up and moved to the other end of the row. When Reed came on the set, his nameplate identified him as Reed Powell. The host asked the students what they wanted to be when they grew up. A cancer researcher, Reed answered. Jobs drove his two-seat Mercedes SL55 taking Reed while his wife followed in her own car with Aaron. On the way home, she asked Aaron why she thought her father refused to have a license plate on his car. To be a rebel, she answered. I later put the question to Jobs. Because people follow me sometimes, and if I have a license plate, they can track down where I live, he replied. But that's kind of getting obsolete now with Google Maps, so I guess, really, it's just because I don't. During Reed's graduation ceremony, his father sent me an email from his iPhone that simply exulted, Today is one of my happiest days. Reed is graduating from high school, right now, and against all odds, I am here. That night there was a party at their house with close friends and family. Reed danced with every member of his family, including his father. Later, Jobs took his son out to the barn-like storage shed to offer him one of his two bicycles, which he wouldn't be riding again. Reed joked that the Italian one looked a bit too gay, so Jobs told him to take the solid eight-speed next to it. When Reed said he would be indebted, Jobs answered, You don't need to be indebted, because you have my DNA. A few days later, Toy Story 3 opened, Jobs had nurtured this Pixar trilogy from the beginning, and the final installment was about the emotion surrounding the departure of Andy for college. I wish I could always be with you, Andy's mother says. You always will be, he replies. Jobs' relationship with his two younger daughters was somewhat more distant. He paid less attention to Aaron, who was quiet, introspective, and seemed not to know exactly how to handle him, especially when he was emitting wounding barbs. She was a poised and attractive young woman, with a personal sensitivity more mature than her father's. She thought that she might want to be an architect, perhaps because of her father's interest in the field, and she had a good sense of design. But when her father was showing Reed the drawings for the new Apple campus, she sat on the other side of the kitchen, and it seemed not to occur to him to call her over as well. Her big hope that spring of 2010 was that her father would take her to the Oscars. She loved the movies. Even more, she wanted to fly with her father on his private plane 
and walk up the red carpet with him. Powell was quite willing to forego the trip and tried to talk her husband into taking Aaron, but he dismissed the idea. At one point as I was finishing this book, Powell told me that Aaron wanted to give me an interview. It's not something that I would have requested, since she was then just turning sixteen, but I agreed. The point Aaron emphasized was that she understood why her father was not always attentive, and she accepted that. He does his best to be both a father and the CEO of Apple, and he juggles those pretty well, she said. Sometimes I wish I had more of his attention, but I know the work he's doing is very important, and I think it's really cool, so I'm fine. I don't really need more attention. Jobs had promised to take each of his children on a trip of their choice when they became teenagers. Reed chose to go to Kyoto, knowing how much his father was entranced by the zen calm of that beautiful city. Not surprisingly, when Aaron turned 13 in 2008, she chose Kyoto as well. Her father's illness caused him to cancel the trip, so he promised to take her in 2010 when he was better. But that June he decided he didn't want to go. Aaron was crestfallen but didn't protest. Instead, her mother took her to France with family friends, and they rescheduled the Kyoto trip for July. Powell worried that her husband would again cancel, so she was thrilled when the whole family took off in early July for Kona Village, Hawaii, which was the first leg of the trip. But in Hawaii, Jobs developed a bad toothache, which he ignored, as if he could will the cavity away. The tooth collapsed and had to be fixed. Then the iPhone 4 antenna crisis hit, and he decided to rush back to Cupertino taking Reed with him. Powell and Aaron stayed in Hawaii, hoping that Jobs would return and continue with the plans to take them to Kyoto. To their relief and mild surprise, Jobs actually did return to Hawaii after his press conference to pick them up and take them to Japan. It's a miracle, Powell told a friend. While Reed took care of Eve back in Palo Alto, Aaron and her parents stayed at the Tawarea Ryokan, an inn of sublime simplicity that Jobs loved. It was fantastic, Aaron recalled. Twenty years earlier, Jobs had taken Aaron's half-sister, Lisa Brennan Jobs, to Japan when she was about the same age. Among her strongest memories was sharing with him delightful meals and watching him, usually such a picky eater, savor unagi sushi and other delicacies. Seeing him take joy in eating made Lisa feel relaxed with him for the first time. Aaron recalled a similar experience. Dad knew where he wanted to go to lunch every day. He told me he knew an incredible soba shop, and he took me there. And it was so good that it's been hard to ever eat soba again, because nothing comes close. They also found a tiny neighborhood sushi restaurant, and Jobs tagged it on his iPhone as Best Sushi I've Ever Had. Aaron agreed. They also visited Kyoto's famous Zen Buddhist temples. The one Aaron loved most was Saihoji, known as the Moss Temple, 
because of its golden pond surrounded by gardens featuring more than a hundred varieties of moss. Aaron was really, really happy, which was deeply gratifying and helped improve her relationship with her father, Powell recalled. She deserved that. Their younger daughter, Eve, was quite a different story. She was spunky, self-assured, and in no way intimidated by her father. Her passion was horseback riding, and she became determined to make it to the Olympics. When a coach told her how much work it would require, she replied, Tell me exactly what I need to do. I will do it. He did, and she began diligently following the program. Eve was an expert at the difficult task of pinning her father down. She often called his assistant at work directly to make sure something got put on his calendar. She was also pretty good as a negotiator. One weekend in 2010, when the family was planning a trip, Aaron wanted to delay the departure by half a day, but she was afraid to ask her father. Eve, then twelve, volunteered to take on the task, and at dinner she laid out the case to her father as if she were a lawyer before the Supreme Court. Jobs cut her off. No, I don't think I want to. But it was clear that he was more amused than annoyed. Later that evening, Eve sat down with her mother and deconstructed the various ways that she could have made her case better. Jobs came to appreciate her spirit and see a lot of himself in her. She's a pistol and has the strongest will of any kid I've ever met, he said. It's like payback. He had a deep understanding of her personality, perhaps because it bore some resemblance to his. Eve is more sensitive than a lot of people think, he explained. She's so smart that she can roll over people a bit, so that means she can alienate people, and she finds herself alone. She's in the process of learning how to be who she is, but tempers it around the edges so that she can have the friends that she needs. Jobs' relationship with his wife was sometimes complicated, but always loyal. Savvy and compassionate, Laureen Powell was a stabilizing influence and an example of his ability to compensate for some of his selfish impulses by surrounding himself with strong-willed and sensible people. She weighed in quietly on business issues, firmly on family concerns, and fiercely on medical matters. Early in their marriage, she co-founded and launched College Track, a national after-school program that helps disadvantaged kids graduate from high school and get into college. Since then, she had become a leading force in the education reform movement. Jobs professed an admiration for his wife's work. What she's done with college track really impresses me. But he tended to be generally dismissive of philanthropic endeavors and never visited her after-school centers. In February 2010, Jobs celebrated his 55th birthday with just his family. The kitchen was decorated with streamers and balloons, and his kids gave him a red velvet toy crown, which he wore. Now that he had recovered from a grueling year of health problems, Powell hoped that he would become more attentive to his family. 
but for the most part he resumed his focus on his work. I think it was hard on the family, especially the girls, she told me. After two years of him being ill, he finally gets a little better, and they expected he would focus a bit on them, but he didn't. She wanted to make sure, she said, that both sides of his personality were reflected in this book and put into context. Like many great men whose gifts are extraordinary, he's not extraordinary in every realm, she said. He doesn't have social graces, such as putting himself in other people's shoes, but he cares deeply about empowering humankind, the advancement of humankind, and putting the right tools in their hands. President Obama On a trip to Washington in the early fall of 2010, Powell had met with some of her friends at the White House who told her that President Obama was going to Silicon Valley that October. She suggested that he might want to meet with her husband. Obama's aides liked the idea. It fit into his new emphasis on competitiveness. In addition, John Doerr, the venture capitalist who had become one of Jobs' close friends, had told a meeting of the President's Economic Recovery Advisory Board about Jobs' views on why the United States was losing its edge. He, too, suggested that Obama should meet with him. So a half hour was put on the President's schedule for a session at the Weston San Francisco Airport. There was one problem. When Powell told her husband, he said he didn't want to do it. He was annoyed that she had arranged it behind his back. I'm not going to get slotted in for a token meeting so that he can check off that he met with a CEO, he told her. She insisted that Obama was really psyched to meet with you. Jobs replied that if that were the case, then Obama should call and personally ask for the meeting. The standoff went on for five days. She called in Reed, who was at Stanford, to come home for dinner and try to persuade his father. Jobs finally relented. The meeting actually lasted 45 minutes, and Jobs did not hold back. You're headed for a one-term presidency, Jobs told Obama at the outset. To prevent that, he said, the administration needed to be a lot more business-friendly. He described how easy it was to build a factory in China and said that it was almost impossible to do so these days in America, largely because of regulations and unnecessary costs. Jobs also attacked America's education system, saying that it was hopelessly antiquated and crippled by union work rules. Until the teachers' unions were broken, there was almost no hope for education reform. Teachers should be treated as professionals, he said, not as industrial assembly line workers. Principals should be able to hire and fire them based on how good they were. Schools should be staying open until at least 6 p.m. and be in session 11 months of the year. It was absurd, he added, that American classrooms were still based on teachers standing at a board and using textbooks. All books, learning materials, and assessments should be digital and interactive, tailored to each student and providing feedback in real time. Jobs offered to put together a group of six or seven CEOs 
who could really explain the innovation challenges facing America, and the president accepted. So Jobs made a list of people for a Washington meeting to be held in December. Unfortunately, after Valerie Jarrett and other presidential aides had added names, the list had expanded to more than 20, with GE's Jeffrey Immelt in the lead. Jobs sent Jarrett an email saying it was a bloated list, and he had no intention of coming. In fact, his health problems had flared anew by then, so he would not have been able to go in any case, as Dorr privately explained to the president. In February 2011, Dorr began making plans to host a small dinner for President Obama in Silicon Valley. He and Jobs, along with their wives, went to dinner at Evia, a Greek restaurant in Palo Alto, to draw up a tight guest list. The dozen chosen tech titans also included Google's Eric Schmidt, Yahoo's Carol Bartz, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, Cisco's John Chambers, Oracle's Larry Ellison, Genentech's Art Levinson, and Netflix's Reed Hastings. Jobs's attention to the details of the dinner extended to the food. Dorr sent him the proposed menu, and he responded that some of the dishes proposed by the caterer, shrimp, cod, lentil salad, were far too fancy and not who you are, John. He particularly objected to the dessert that was planned, a cream pie tricked out with chocolate truffles. But the White House advance staff overruled him by telling the caterer that the president liked cream pie. Because Jobs had lost so much weight that he was easily chilled, Dorr kept the house so warm that Zuckerberg found himself sweating profusely. Jobs, sitting next to the president, kicked off the dinner by saying, Regardless of our political persuasions, I want you to know that we're here to do whatever you ask to help our country. Despite that, the dinner initially became a litany of suggestions of what the president could do for the businesses there. Chambers, for example, pushed a proposal for a repatriation tax holiday that would allow major corporations to avoid tax payments on overseas profits if they brought them back to the United States for investment during a certain period. The president was annoyed, and so was Zuckerberg, who turned to Valerie Jarrett sitting to his right and whispered, We should be talking about what's important to the country. Why is he just talking about what's good for him? Dorr was able to refocus the discussion by calling on everyone to suggest a list of action items. When Jobs' turn came, he stressed the need for more trained engineers and suggested that any foreign students who earned an engineering degree in the United States should be given a visa to stay in the country. Obama said that could be done only in the context of the DREAM Act, which would allow illegal aliens who arrived as minors and finished high school to become legal residents, something that the Republicans had blocked. Jobs found this an annoying example of how politics can lead to paralysis. The president is very smart, but he kept explaining to us reasons why things can't get done, he recalled. It infuriates me. Jobs went on to urge that a way be found to train more American engineers. 
Apple had 700,000 factory workers employed in China, he said, and that was because it needed 30,000 engineers on site to support those workers. You can't find that many in America to hire, he said. These factory engineers did not have to be PhDs or geniuses. They simply needed to have basic engineering skills for manufacturing. Tech schools, community colleges, or trade schools could train them. If you could educate these engineers, he said, we could move more manufacturing plants here. The argument made a strong impression on the president. Two or three times over the next month, he told his aides, we've got to find ways to train those 30,000 manufacturing engineers that Jobs told us about. Jobs was pleased that Obama followed up, and they talked by telephone a few times after the meeting. He offered to help create Obama's political ads for the 2012 campaign. He had made the same offer in 2008, but he'd become annoyed when Obama's strategist, David Axelrod, wasn't totally deferential. I think political advertising is terrible. I'd love to get Lee Clow out of retirement, and we can come up with great commercials for him, Jobs told me a few weeks after the dinner. Jobs had been fighting pain all week, but the talk of politics energized him. Every once in a while, a real ad pro gets involved, the way Hal Riney did with It's Morning in America for Reagan's re-election in 1984. So that's what I'd like to do for Obama. Third Medical Leave, 2011 the cancer always sent signals as it reappeared. Jobs had learned that. He would lose his appetite and begin to feel pains throughout his body. His doctors would do tests, detect nothing, and reassure him that he still seemed clear. But he knew better. The cancer had its signaling pathways, and a few months after he felt the signs, the doctors would discover that it was indeed no longer in remission. Another such downturn began in early November 2010. He was in pain, stopped eating, and had to be fed intravenously by a nurse who came to the house. The doctors found no sign of more tumors, and they assumed that this was just another of his periodic cycles of fighting infections and digestive maladies. He had never been one to suffer pain stoically, so his doctors and family had become somewhat inured to his complaints. He and his family went to Kona Village for Thanksgiving, but his eating did not improve. The dining there was in a communal room, and the other guests pretended not to notice as Jobs, looking emaciated, rocked and moaned at meals, not touching his food. It was a testament to the resort and its guests that his condition never leaked out. When he returned to Palo Alto, Jobs became increasingly emotional and morose. He thought he was going to die, he told his kids, and he would get choked up about the possibility that he would never celebrate any more of their birthdays. By Christmas, he was down to 115 pounds, which was more than 50 pounds below his normal weight. Mona Simpson came to Palo Alto for the holiday, along with her ex-husband, the television comedy writer Richard Appel, and their children. The mood picked up a bit. 
The families played parlor games such as novel, in which participants try to fool each other by seeing who can write the most convincing fake opening sentence to a book, and things seemed to be looking up for a while. He was even able to go out to dinner at a restaurant with Powell a few days after Christmas. The kids went off on a ski vacation for New Year's, with Powell and Mona Simpson taking turns staying at home with jobs in Palo Alto. By the beginning of 2011, however, it was clear that this was not merely one of his bad patches. His doctors detected evidence of new tumors, the cancer-related signaling further exacerbated his loss of appetite, and they were struggling to determine how much drug therapy his body, in its emaciated condition, would be able to take. Every inch of his body felt like it had been punched, he told friends, as he moaned and sometimes doubled over in pain. It was a vicious cycle. The first signs of cancer caused pain. The morphine and other painkillers he took suppressed his appetite. His pancreas had been partly removed, and his liver had been replaced, so his digestive system was faulty and had trouble absorbing protein. Losing weight made it harder to embark on aggressive drug therapies. His emaciated condition also made him more susceptible to infections, as did the immunosuppressants he sometimes took to keep his body from rejecting his liver transplant. The weight loss reduced the lipid layers around his pain receptors, causing him to suffer more. And he was prone to extreme mood swings marked by prolonged bouts of anger and depression, which further suppressed his appetite. Job's eating problems were exacerbated over the years by his psychological attitude toward food. When he was young, he learned that he could induce a euphoria and ecstasy by fasting. So even though he knew that he should eat, his doctors were begging him to consume high-quality protein, lingering in the back of his subconscious, he admitted, was his instinct for fasting and for diets like Arnold Eretz's fruit regimen that he had embraced as a teenager. Powell kept telling him that it was crazy, even pointing out that Eret had died at 56 when he stumbled and knocked his head, and she would get angry when he came to the table and just stared silently at his lap. I wanted him to force himself to eat, she said, and it was incredibly tense at home. Briar Brown, their part-time cook, would still come in the afternoon and make an array of healthy dishes, but Jobs would touch his tongue to one or two dishes and then dismiss them all as inedible. One evening he announced, I could probably eat a little pumpkin pie, and the even-tempered Brown created a beautiful pie from scratch in an hour. Jobs ate only one bite, but Brown was thrilled. Powell talked to eating disorder specialists and psychiatrists, but her husband tended to shun them. He refused to take any medications or be treated in any way for his depression. When you have feelings, he said, like sadness or anger about your cancer or your plight, to mask them is to lead an artificial life. In fact, he swung to the other extreme. He became morose, tearful, and dramatic as he lamented to all around him that he was about to die.
The depression became part of the vicious cycle by making him even less likely to eat. Pictures and videos of Jobs looking emaciated began to appear online, and soon rumors were swirling about how sick he was. The problem, Powell realized, was that the rumors were true, and they were not going to go away. Jobs had agreed only reluctantly to go on medical leave two years earlier when his liver was failing, and this time he also resisted the idea. It would be like leaving his homeland, unsure that he would ever return. When he finally bowed to the inevitable, in January 2011, the board members were expecting it. The telephone meeting in which he told them that he wanted another leave took only three minutes. He had often discussed with the board in executive session his thoughts about who could take over if anything happened to him, presenting both short-term and longer-term combinations of options. But there was no doubt that in this current situation, Tim Cook would again take charge of day-to-day -day operations. The following Saturday afternoon, Jobs allowed his wife to convene a meeting of his doctors. He realized that he was facing the type of problem that he never permitted at Apple. His treatment was fragmented rather than integrated. Each of his myriad maladies was being treated by different specialists, oncologists, pain specialists, nutritionists, hepatologists, and hematologists. But they were not being coordinated in a cohesive approach the way James Eason had done in Memphis. One of the big issues in the healthcare industry is the lack of caseworkers or advocates that are the quarterback of each team, Powell said. This was particularly true at Stanford, where nobody seemed in charge of figuring out how nutrition was related to pain care and to oncology. So Powell asked the various Stanford specialists to come to their house for a meeting that also included some outside doctors with a more aggressive and integrated approach, such as David Agus of USC. They agreed on a new regimen for dealing with the pain and for coordinating the other treatments. Thanks to some pioneering science, the team of doctors had been able to keep Jobs one step ahead of the cancer. He had become one of the first 20 people in the world to have all of the genes of his cancer tumor, as well as of his normal DNA, sequenced. It was a process that, at the time, cost more than $100,000. The gene sequencing and analysis was done collaboratively by teams at Stanford, Johns Hopkins, and the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. By knowing the unique genetic and molecular signature of Jobs' tumors, his doctors had been able to pick specific drugs that directly targeted the defective molecular pathways 